Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I guess for this episode is Sheldon Cohen, director of The Sweater and My Heart Attack, and Rhiannon Evans, director of Heartstrings and Fulfillment. Joining me in this episode of the Squiggly Podcast is Squiggly Features writer, Laura Beth Cowley. Laura, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm falling apart at the seams. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm not sleeping. It's one of the most stressful times of my professional life. I've got some kind of weird lump on my wrist that, according to my GP, can only be cured by dropping a Bible on it. That's actually true. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in terrible, terrible shape. I'm in a state of disrepair. Good. Don't you hate it when you ask people how they are and then they tell you? <laughs> yeah, you, it's common courtesy just to ignore that question and go, yeah, fine. Of course, listeners to the Squiggly podcast know that I like to complain. <laughs> and so Laura Beth and me have uh, done some curation for the Manchester Animation Festival, which is imminent. It's going to be starting tomorrow if you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out. And I think we're both quite excited to, uh, to go there. Yeah, no, it'll be good. It kind of comes after the whole thing with Bath finishing i only managed to get to bath once in my life Mm. so it'll be nice to and it was always a nice festival it's very cozy so i'm hoping math has some of that spirit and also manchester is just an exciting city in itself so it's always good to get up there yeah home looks like a really nice venue i've only seen sort of pictures of it but it looks really um it's like really shiny like it looks (laughs) like the kind of place where you could like skate on the floor in your socks yeah i'm not entirely sure if they'll let me do that but um, we'll find a we'll find yeah. a closed area where you can do that. And uh, when we're coming back from Click the other week, because Click had a really really nice venue at the uh, the Eye Center, it was this big media and film museum, and that was just a nice place to sort of know you were going every every day. I get the impression that Home is sort of a very similar kind of setup, certainly similar in terms of its intent. And as we've discussed sort of on the podcast in these sort of like weeks leading up to the Manchester Animation Festival, is a really sort of strong batch of programs for its inaugural edition. Uh, Steve will be joining the podcast in a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what to expect then. But in the meantime, I thought we'd have a little chat about some of the events that we're, uh, we've put together, our squiggly showcase screenings. Mm-hmm. I guess we could start with some general animation news, something that we've kind of had an eye on at Squiggly for a while, that uh, I think it was you, Laura, who brought it to our attention initially, or possibly they did over Twitter, but it was the, uh, the show from Tin Man in Toronto. Yeah, no, I, I found it because I was sort of aimlessly wandering through Kickstarter trying to find something to throw money at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sort of came across Super Science Friends was like, oh, it's like you took my dreams and made it into a series. Um, not because I'm particularly interested in science, but just the style of the show was incredible. And it was kind of like if I'd attempted to do anything to do with science, I probably would have liked to have had the idea to do this mm. because it's not necessarily massively historically correct or anything but who gives a crap no. <laughs> at the same time no it's not a it's it's far from a documentary <laughs> i would say that much but it is great fun i also uh, backed it on kickstarter and uh, i think you talked to them around that was it just after the kickstarter wrapped up or was, no, it, no, it, was when it was going on because what's the point of talking to someone about kickstarter after the event it's kind of like it's nice but they kind of want as much coverage as possible well, for them, yeah, it makes more sense to talk to them during the campaign. It's kind of, I think from our perspective, I think that we kind of have a bit of a, a, a balance of we'll, we'll talk to people once things are actually in motion. Sometimes when we talk to people when they're doing a campaign, 
there may be a couple of previous podcast guests who have, say, been doing a Kickstarter campaign, and then it turned out, like, years and years later, they never actually delivered the product. But it's okay, because they made Ren and Stimpy. (laughs) (laughs) Still waiting on that cans without labels. Not entirely sure what happened there, John, but uh, there you go. Um, These guys are absolutely delivered. They've made a pilot for a TV show. It has the production values of easily anything else I've seen on television. It's actually, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a cut above an awful lot of the kind of adult swim sort of fair, the kind of archer mode of quick, easy animation production. This is something with lots of full animation sequences. The design is really well thought out, so it really... They really haven't done anything by half. So I remember when they, when we were interviewing them about it, one of the things they said was that he wasn't going to allow the animators to do any like quick dissolve. So if there's smoke, there's no dissolve feature. They have to like go into particles and animate every particle as it slowly gets smaller and smaller in a way. And um, even though as the animator that must be a pain in the ass, it you know it looks beautiful. There's a moment in the pilot where uh, Churchill's smoking, mm. and the rings sort of just vapor off, but there's no dissolve. Yeah. Which, but it really adds to it because it's meant to have that kind of comic book style. Because one of the things they've been doing alongside this is they've been doing an online comic, which you then you also get another one of the rewards was a comic book mm. as well. Uh, so they've been doing, you know, it's all kept in that kind of style and it's it's just beautiful. And the, all the colors are sort of stripped back, they've sort of really stuck to their guns, and there's only about eight or nine colours in the whole film, but you, that doesn't distract. And, it, you know, they've just they've thought about it all. Yeah. Oh, the colours, I think, are one of my favourite things about it, the use of colour in this. It's not the kind of colour palette of any other show. Like, you think of something like Simpsons Family Guy, even, like, BoJack and like Rick and Morty. They go out and they, they'll add colours when they need to, but with this, they've, they've kept it stripped back because I think it's meant to be set in the... 1920s, 1940s. Cause so that's a sort of contributor to the colour decisions, you think? Oh, yeah, no, that's why everything's like sepia, because right. it was during the Second World War. Well, it's not like it's sepia, it's it's very desaturated, but very much kind of like, the colours are very well chosen, they're very complementary, they're very calming, mm. I think. It's like, but yeah, it's it's kind of, it's just toned down, I think. So <laughs> <laughs> we're watching it as we're, um, as we're talking about it uh, in the background, and Hitlerbot just came on which uh, I think is a good sort of indicator. Now, the premise is essentially it's like a super group, like a sort of super friends of um, actual historical figures. So you have Winston Churchill is kind of the um, Bosley, I guess. And like his angels are Mary Curie and uh, a sort of young adolescent Albert Einstein. Freud. Sigmund Freud, yeah. Sigmund Freud during his cocaine addiction years. Charles Darwin, who and they have these sort of relevant superpowers as to what it is that they uh, are kind of known for. So Darwin kind of has the power to, like, evolve and de-evolve into different animals. Yeah, he morphs. And there's um, there's also Tesla, which is... The, all of the superheroes have their their natural enemy as well, which doesn't come through in the pilot, because it's, obviously it's just one episode, but as the series will progress, and if you, like, look back over the whole Kickstarter history and their blog and such, you know their kind of ideas of what they're going to do. But each have their like their natural enemy. So Darwin is um, Christians, mm-hmm. um, Churchill is the Nazis, Tesla is Thomas Edison. They all play off each other. I think my favourite's Freud. I love mm-hmm. Freud. I was always going to love Freud. Freud is fantastic. <laughs> he has the power to control people's sexual thoughts, and it's just it's it's just hilarious. Like he just every time anyone like if they're in a battle scene, they're just like make out now. 
<laughs> and, and they'll just be busy shagging. <laughs> and Marie Curie has sort of like the the ability to sort of has sort of nuclear power. I guess she can sort of shoot rays and stuff. Yeah, she has a she has a magazine rock that oh. shoots. So I guess she sort of exudes radiation to yeah. kind of. But then whenever she does it, she then makes herself like sick from radiation poisoning. Wasn't something like with radiation back in the day, like it radiation was something that glowed in the dark. So people started wearing it. Like I I remember the very first animation I had to do at uni was a film about radiation poisoning because my tutor was depressing. Mm. It was a film about women who painted clock faces on the numbers so that they would glow in the dark and the whole thing was that they'd put the brush with the chemical on in their mouth to make the point and then make the number so they would and then they all got radiation poisoning and then their bosses used to say they had syphilis and that's why they were dying but it wasn't it's because they had radiation poisoning and back in that that day and ages that that's why uh, that's why she died is because she had radiation poisoning it's a lovely story <laughs> jesus yeah, <romantic. laughs> so somewhere out there there are six students that have a film about radiation poisoning because hmm. we all had to do it yeah i do remember you see this kind of like old like chemistry kits and stuff that would now never ever go on the market and one is like you know make your own nuclear lab yeah. Have fun learning about science. Well, that's the narration in this as well. It's like like a propaganda voiceover for the whole thing. Mm. I do like a good old timey propaganda. Mm. I mean, some of the stuff that you see on on YouTube, like actual sort of films from that era, are absolutely astounding. Like nine out of ten doctors recommend Winston cigarettes when you're pregnant <laughs> over the leading brand. <laughs> yeah. So, super science friends, you can watch this first episode for free online. It's on YouTube, I think probably on Vimeo as well, but it's easy enough to find. And for those of you who have been sort of following this, perhaps since we uh, did the feature on it, I guess about a year ago, was it? Yeah, it was about a year ago now. Yeah. I'm just really sort of glad to see it actually uh, has come together. It's probably the most we've ever talked about something on the podcast where we then didn't have the guest as someone who worked on it, but maybe one day we'll have them on. We wish them well, because this looks funny. This looks, you know... I really hope it gets, like, greenlit for something. Mm. One would hope that they would be able to kind of go down the road that uh, the Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared couple have done, which is, uh, I don't know if they're a couple, the creative partnership behind Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, who kickstarted what is now a whole series of these little films. I could see something similar kind of happening with this, something creator-led. So yeah, definitely check that out, and I don't think that's the last we're going to hear from or about the uh, the Super Science Friends and uh, Tin Man Creative in Toronto. Good stuff. It's uh, cheered me up some. At a time where I think we all need a bit of cheering up. So moving along to um, what else we've been up to. Uh, before I kind of descend for the next little while into a complete limbo of, of I have this massive, scary, terrifying deadline at the end of this month. The last kind of thing I will be doing before I, I disappear completely is uh, uh, presenting with you, Laura Beth, at the Manchester Animation Festival, the squiggly screenings, which are completely free. These are compiled from a bunch of different types of films, films that uh, we've both seen at festivals recently that we thought were particularly impressive, films that have been submitted to our Squiggly Showcase, which is always a great way to discover new work, and uh, a lot of it is very, very good, and some films that were sort of in consideration for the main sort of strands of Manchester, and um, for whatever reason, usually just circumstantial, as is often the case with festivals, couldn't quite be slotted in, so we've slotted them into this one. And, uh, and some we just found online. <laughs> yeah, that too. Dabbling around on Facebook and go, oh, that looks quite nice. Well, I think you're quite good at like hunting stuff out, and not just for things like this, but for the website in general. You've always been very good at uh, keeping your sort of finger on the pulse of what's happening with a lot of studios. 
independent films made within studios, like stuff that we have a film from Animade that's gone in that uh, would not, I think, have come across my radar had you not flagged it. Uh, a Sheridan film, a Sheridan graduation film called Lucy and the Limbs, which uh, I think is really, really nice. Again, that's something that I think you kind of discovered on your own. I think someone on Facebook will have posted it up and then I, I, I'm i like a animation mole slash stalker. So I'll just find out people and then email them and be like, let's interview you. Well, that's the, that's sort of the, the point of Squiggly. Journalists are secretly just stalker moles. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so let's sort of punch up the, uh, the programs for people who want to uh, swing by. As we uh, mentioned, it's completely free. It's in the uh, Manchester home event space, and the home venue is going to be where pretty much the entire festival is going to take place. The entire festival listings are at the website manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. So the first screening is at 4 p.m. Tuesday 17th, that's tomorrow. And so there's quite a lot of films that hopefully people will get a kick out of. There's some stuff that we've covered in the past. There's the Cordell Barker's new film. I'm so excited about seeing that on an actual screen. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just a lovely, it's really, really good stop motion, which is not what Cordell Barker has been known for up till this year. He found some really, really good uh, animators. I think it's a couple, I forget their names, but he talks about the production uh, in episode 30 of the Squiggly podcast at some length. So uh, it's worth checking that one out. Uh, It's just a really nice um, sort of musing, autobiographical, semi-autobiographical musing on uh, uh, young Cordell Barker in a biology dissection class. And he has these kind of... um, existential uh, wonderings about what it would be like if he ruled the universe, sort of playing God with this dead frog. Also that we've sort of covered on the website in the past, there's An Ode to Love by Matthew Dara. It's a brown bag film. Andy Martin's new film, Mr. Director, which is a film that he had on the boil for years and years and years, and he finally uh, finished it off after he did The Planets uh, last year or the year before, uh, which is quite a sort of encouraging thing when you kind of have something that kind of lingers for a long time and then you finally just sort of finish it off. Benjamin Arcan, who did Wackadoo, it's a Canadian film. Uh, Benjamin's from Montreal. It's not an NFB film, but it's a kind of very retro, cartoony, incredibly sort of detailed, fluid, great musical dance number. It kind of has elements of old Looney Tunes, old Chuck Jones, some new design conventions of like what John Kay does and some of John Kay's various protégés. And then some friends of Squiggly, uh, Steve Kirby, who recently did a couple of our site banners, and Joe Hepworth, and... Ollie Putland, who we've shown some of his work in uh, one of our earlier Squiggly Showcase screenings. Good crop of stuff. And the second Squiggly screening will be at 3.30 the following day. That's this Wednesday the 18th. Again, at the same venue, the event space at home. Another great crop of people. There's Claude Cloutier, his new film from the NFP. It's called Carface. Some really, really nice stuff that we've seen kind of on the festival circuit. There's Mike Smith's Cooped, which is a really great animation about a dog that's trying to get out of the house. New work from Chris Shepard, uh, Aidan McAteer's Deadly. Aidan McAteer, he spoke to us on the podcast a few episodes ago. Sausage by Robert Greaves. He talked uh, quite a bit about uh, putting that film out there uh, on Squiggly through a series of articles last year, which I thought were quite interesting from the perspective of an independent filmmaker. He did quite a lot of research in terms of like how to get a film out there and sort of visible. Some really nice films I've seen recently. It's stuff like Click. There's uh, Cupido. Uh, it's a music video for the band The Kick. By Natalie Forthouse of the collective Brontemus in the Netherlands. And uh, one of my favorite films of this year, it's a Romanian film it's by Matai Brunea. It's called Omilan. And um, I think it's absolutely lovely. I can't really describe it too much. It's sort of one that kind of has to be... Have a look for the trailer, I guess. And that should be enough to kind of entice you, I suppose. And then there's some classic stuff like Loop Ring Chop Drink. I think most people will have seen that again. If not, there's a interview on Squiggly 
worth uh, checking out. It's by Nicholas Minard. It's an RCA film. So going back to the first screening, one of the other films that we have is the new film from Sheldon Cohen. Uh, it's called My Heart Attack. It's the first film of his in quite a long time. Sheldon, I think, is probably best known for the NFP film The Sweater, which was a very, very long time ago, um, but it was a really sort of big deal. It was an adaptation of the very popular children's story, uh, The Hockey Sweater. And so it was sort of assumed, I think, that Sheldon had kind of moved on from animation at this point. Then life happened, and then he ended up having a heart attack in real life, and that actually kind of shunted him more in the direction of making more animation. And he's created this piece of work that's a, a very interesting, compelling, and at times quite sort of horrifying account of what exactly that is like. I find it weird that if you were going to if you were going to have a heart attack, the thing you would do with your life then would be to do an animation, the slowest <laughs> process in the world. I do agree with you that animation, given all the sort of inherent stresses of it, would perhaps not be the most obvious like choice of telling a story in terms of medium, just because of how much you know has to go into it. I also kind of feel a similar sense of relatability in terms of the the catharsis of being able to tell a story if you have a health scare. Um, I do think that it's something that quite a few people have done to varying degrees of success, but I think that this was a really kind of watchable way of doing it. I thought that his way of telling the story was quite charming. I thought that the uh, the sequence of events that leads up to it is quite interesting. It's sort of not what you expect. There's a scene near the beginning that... Uh, definitely endears his wife to the audience. There's an interesting mix of styles and approaches to the animation when he's talking about more sort of medical processes. Things kind of shift from this very kind of fluid 2D animation style to a more kind of infographic-y style. I think the part of it that really kind of hits home for me is is discussing the sort of trauma, not of the heart attack itself, but of the road to recovery and how a person reacts emotionally to any kind of invasive surgery. It's not something that is actually talked about nearly as much. So I was really, really impressed by this film, and uh, I'm very glad that we'll be able to show it this week. And we have a chat with him that we'll present to you now. So this is me talking to Sheldon Cohen, the director of the NFP film My Heart Attack. How long ago had did the actual heart attack take place? It was, well, four years ago in the summer in August uh, is when the actual... Um, event took place. Uh, what happened, it, it kind of um, uh, was interesting because, not to get too medical, but they put a stent in, uh, you know, the day that it happened to unblock a, a major artery that was blocked. And after a couple of days in the hospital, I thought, okay, well, you know, this is the worst is over. And it was a shock to my system, but I can deal with it. Except just as I was kind of about to leave, they said, well, uh, unfortunately, we we found a lot more blockages on the other side of the heart, and we actually have to do open heart surgery. So that really was like kind of a double whammy and just threw me totally. And what happened was I, I actually went on a waiting list that just kind of went on and on for months. Uh, so then uh, it took actually four months later for me to actually have the, the open heart surgery that I talk about in the film. So that was around Christmas 2011. Mm -hmm. At the time, though, it kind of was never a thought in my mind it would be an animated film. Although right from the start, I kind of had this story in me to tell. But in general, what happened was within sort of the next two years, it went from uh, simple development into sort of major production. Mm -hmm. So it all happened relatively quickly when you think about it. Uh, it's quite amazing to me that 
it all unfolded this way. It, it kind of everything just came out of the blue, uh, mm. the heart attack, and then even coming back to animation because I, I kind of had turned my back a little bit on animation in the sense that I felt I. It's been 40 years, actually, since I've been doing these kind of films, and I felt it was time to take a new direction. So you never know where life is going to bring you. It's almost like, in a way, um, life told me, like, not so fast. Like, there's one more film, at least, you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's how it happened. So I, was, I was curious as to, because when a major life event determines what, uh, so your next film is going to be, whether yeah. there may have been like another film idea that had been in the wings or another kind of artistic or creative project. No, uh, really, really, um, it, it, it was as kind of out of the blue as mm. the heart attack, like I said. Creatively, uh, I was really interested in writing more, which I've always, my films always relied on another author uh, using their stories and uh, adapting them. Mm. Um, that's That kind of became my specialty, starting with the sweater with Rock Carrier mm. in 1980. And I never sort of uh, even uh, thought of it or had the confidence to think that I could tell my own story. Um, so it kind of forced me into uh, a, a different route as a filmmaker. But I, at the time of the heart attack, and uh, this is kind of mentioned in the film, I, I was writing what you can call a memoir about my uh, experience w- with filmmaking. So writing was actually on my mind at the time. It was something that I was really enjoying, and I would sit every day in front of my computer and really uh, get into actual writing. So there was a bit of a natural evolution that when this film project did happen that I could sort of also, aside from being the director, I could also be the actual author mm-hmm. uh, of the story. I ended up actually being the narrator, which was also a, a real stretch for me. Everyone said, well, this is so personal, it has to be you telling it. But it, it, just as a director, I would never hire myself as an actor. <laughs> uh, so I I just uh, really had to um, get comfortable enough to, to actually sit in front of a microphone and start recording. It would have taken a a normal actor two hours to sit in a booth and you know go wall to wall narration, but it it really took me literally two summers to to get the narration oh. out. So so you know in a way that um, there's something fresh about this film for me. Um, it, it kept me kind of feeling almost like a kid in school again. I had to learn techniques and using the Cintiq. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know anything about all that technology and it all became like a a learning curve for me on this project it does have that fantastic painterly style to it was there a sort of particular software you used to sort of replicate that yeah well um it we used the tv paint program um Mm. a film board uses either toon boom or tv paint for these kind of things but to give credit to the visuals i worked with someone who really took my kind of scribbles and primitive um, interpretations uh, of this experience that I put on paper, and, and he developed it in a digital way. His name is David Barlow Carlina, who's just kind of um, <clears throat> emerging now with his own films at the film board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just by chance, they put me in an office with him. The funny thing is, the way that this happened was just to give a little sort of... Uh, preliminary of how this all happened. I actually was thinking I would go into art therapy um, as kind of the next career choice in a way to go for Mm -hmm. my master's um, in Montreal. And I made my application just all around the time of my heart attack. 
And I thought that that was my next step. I had a great interview and uh, wonderful references, and it just seemed like this was going to happen. And sure enough, I got a letter saying I didn't get in. (laughs) I was Mm. just so angry that my knee-jerk reaction was to call Marcy Page at the film board, who's uh, been my producer for 25 years there. And just on a lark, I just, uh, you know, again, sort of uh, out of anger, just said, like, would you do a film on my heart attack? You know, thinking like Mm. she'd probably never say yes. And within a couple of days, she totally embraced the, the project, and I had a contract soon after so it kind of um really evolved in a in an unexpected way the thing is is when i actually got the go-ahead and the green light i totally panicked i had no idea how to make this film it just like threw me like in in, in a way that i thought like i don't know i think i'm just gonna have to like leave here and never come back and like <laughs> i i just it really was like uh, i had no idea i tried my usual style is kind of outlining with flat fill very primitive but i knew in this film i really wanted sort of a source of light that i don't get in my normal artwork Mm. so this person uh, marcy page said why don't you just ask uh, david you know sort of discuss a little bit about the visuals and he just it just clicked in terms of what he could do um it's just a gift he has and just technically he's a genius so he's able to like what would take me kind of weeks to do he would do in an afternoon (laughs) so Mm. you know it's kind of like after 40 years i finally figured out how to do animation like it's it's so simple (laughs) you know (laughs) so basically um the the, at that point it it, i i really feel it it sort of stopped being just my film and so I, i really you know do want to give him the credit the credit he has is officially art director, but, uh, you know, it's almost like co-director. Uh, and then the, the, there was an amazing animation team. Because, again, because, like, I was so limited in, in my technical abilities. Um, although I, I have to say, now that I, I went through this experience, there's no turning back. I kind of always thought I would just be a paper and pencil animator and, you know, sit there flipping pages my whole life but it's amazing when now everything is just on this tablet you know from from rough drawings and storyboard to images animation editing incorporating music you know it's just all there and it allows you just to try so many different things very quickly which changes the process of filmmaking it's quite incredible to me it's a nice sort of mix of um, visual styles as well, certain sort of infographic segments when discussing some of the technical health issues. Yeah, that could work both ways because if it didn't come together properly, it could be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad you're mentioning that, that, that you feel it, it does work. Uh, I, I believe it does too in, in the sense that I don't like to use rules like anything should be a certain way. For me, like whatever gets it out there and tells the story in the right way is what's necessary, kind of like a clash. But sort of the bottom line is that you're keeping the audience in a certain rhythm of storytelling no matter what it takes. So that, that's a little bit my philosophy behind all the different styles. It just it wasn't anything really conscious. It was more just wanting to tell the story, basically. Um, certain sort of abstract visuals as well, as it gets quite intense toward the end. I think there's a certain sort of turning point in the film it's a very powerful moment with the candle and the sort of scare and yeah, the sort of flashes yeah. of red. 
Exactly. It kind of it really shifts gears midway. Um, even uh, me, who, who you know is so close to the film, when I watch it now, I'm kind of surprised that I'm suddenly in a different place. Mm. You, you know, it, it and it yeah, you're right. It does, and and it's how it happened in real life. I mean, in a way, uh, at some point in this whole thing, it stopped being funny and it stopped being you know anything other than really bringing me to the brink of whether I'm going to make it or not. And the recovery itself, uh, it's kind of why I wanted to make the film in the first place. I felt I, I wasn't prepared at all for when I got home of, of what awaited me. You know, they do the surgery and, and they actually uh, save your life. But what happens afterwards just totally um, threw me. It, it kind of was like hitting a brick wall in a way. I just never experienced feelings like that. And and I, and I think a lot of it is because <clears throat> this particular surgery and anything like this uh, in general, but w- what this does, it's so invasive when you think about it. It goes to the core of your being. You know, they they actually reach into your heart and start manipulating it. Uh, so I, I'm sure that on some level, even though you know, you're totally under, the body remembers. There, there's some psychic... Uh, um, something in your psyche that just holds on to the trauma of it. And mm. that's why animation is so interesting for me to use as the medium, because it's really feelings that go beyond normal expression. So those abstract images that, that you saw are, are ways for me to try to convey what I felt. Mm. And, and I'm hoping this film actually, for people facing this kind of thing, will allow some kind of uh, understanding or preparation for it. Mm-hmm. But having said that, uh, again, bottom line as a filmmaker, I, I just really do want to tell a good story. Uh, so th- that creatively was really uh, my goal also. I think also it's important to kind of keep the elements of levity throughout. And it, even though toward the end it goes on a more sort of serious journey, I feel especially the sort of last line in the accompanying visual, that sort of very positive note to end on was really nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, it's very true. <laughs> My doctor did say, you know, maybe uh, I won't give away the whole thing for people who haven't seen the film, but it's interesting about the ending. It wasn't the ending until close to the very ending. We had different mm-hmm. ways of how everything would lead to sort of me coming out of the operation. And in a way, I had a way more jubilant um kind of, uh, it was going to be like a, a choir, uh, almost like a gospel singing of uh, this, this little light of mine and kind of just totally uh, over the top, which this ending is kind of the opposite, even though it maintains some kind of uh, lightness to it. But there's so many changes that happen through the production, uh, halfway through my producer, Marcy Page, who's, there's just uh, no one quite like her. She's she's just totally amazing as a producer. But she retired, and I was kind of spinning my wheels in terms of uh, what would happen next. And on board came uh, Yelena Popovich, who's um, took on the the producing. So it was actually with her that we worked out the kind of ending that that you see. Um, so I, I kind of give her credit too for for uh, leading me in that direction. And then there's the um, McGarrigal sister song. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm sure um, various people in England know know of the McGarrigal sisters, uh, but in Canada, they're they're definitely like music royalty here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that final song came also at the very end, which um, for me just 
brings together the emotions of the whole experience in a, in a way that, uh, you know, without getting too corny, but it, it's really about love in a way, you know. Um, in the end, you know, all this leads to, you know, appreciating life and people that you're with. And uh, anyway, it, it, you know, it, it, it was it's a tricky film because it's a combination of the humor and the very profound and sort of finding the balance where you can appreciate both of it. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you mentioned about the sort of art therapy, and uh, there was a recent discussion at an event I was at. It was sort of a panel discussion following a screening of a film that dealt with mental illness. And the sort of post-screening panel discussion, there was a chap who was uh, involved in art therapy using animation specifically. Really? as a sort of therapeutic exercise to get people to kind of come to terms with PTSD issues and things like that. And I was sort of curious, did you find any sort of part of the actual process of making the film once it was sort of settled into making it and the initial kind of panic went away? Was there any sort of therapeutic value to that? Yeah, that's a great question because I think I experience more of what art therapy really is uh, than mm-hmm. if I actually went into the program. Uh, <laughs> and it, it um, definitely, definitely, it just, frame by frame, it, it it put me into the experience to face it and to somehow integrate it in a way that really was beneficial. Often, um, it, it might be that you would want to sort of get as far away as, from the experience and just move on, but... I don't tend to be like that in any case. Like I feel it's important to face things in order to overcome them. So because I came to it also as a creative person, it, there was some kind of objective way that I was dealing with the whole thing. But in it all, there was also this subjective healing of um, uh, of it's almost like pieces coming together. It, 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 in the way that I felt broken, it, it kind of pieced me together. Um, and uh, it's a little bit what I meant by at the end of the film with, with that song. Uh, it, it kind of um, uh, there is a healing in the whole thing, uh, in the whole experience, both in the film and in my life. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a really good example of how art and life are you know should be the same and is the same in this case. Mm-hmm. Something that I think uh, a lot of uh, our listeners will probably be familiar with would be one of your earlier. Films. I think possibly the first film would have been was that the sweater, yeah, the NFB. Uh, well, my first sort of major real storytelling film, yeah. And I think it uh, did it win a BAFTA in. Uh, yes, it did in uh, nineteen eighty. Yeah, it's in, it's a great film to watch. Still has this very sort of strong sense of um, that sort of Quebecois like identity that you know uh, that sort of hockey culture and like Eaton's and um, it really is sort of lovely to my family is from uh, Quebec. Oh really? Oh, that's cool. Well, it's so interesting because yeah, I'm uh, especially in Canada. This story uh, just has resonated. You know, thirty years, forty years later, it's um, almost um, in a way as uh, it just still keeps hitting a nerve. A few years after the film, I did it as a children's book that um, also became a bestseller here. And so the story is totally part of um, it. Just. Rock Carey's story, uh, again, is a real-life story uh, about getting the enemy's team sweater uh, when his mother sends away. But um, it, it really is a reflection of Canada in many ways and, and Quebec. But what's so interesting is that I'm 
I, I really, I hate to admit this, but I don't speak French very well. Um, and, and it's, a, you know, typically a very traditional Catholic story of growing up in a small village and I'm Jewish and the whole cultural and linguistic way that I came to it is from the opposite end. And um, somehow um, it, it just, uh, again, I guess as a filmmaker, you know, which is interesting because my heart attack was so close to my experience and the sweater was in a way so opposite to my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet as a filmmaker, there's a certain genuine way of telling a story if you click into it. So with the sweater, um, I actually did research. I went with the author to the, to the village where it took place and I did all the, the necessary outer things, but uh, there's something universal when when storytelling is at its best. So as I was able to tap into that, even though my background was so different, it's just ironic that um, someone like me has been part of that project. Um, mm-hmm. But it's probably the most popular thing I've I've done in my whole career. So uh, you never know. You can't you can't predict these things. Uh, have you and Rock worked together on anything since then? Uh, well, in children's books, we did a whole series based on that original hockey sweater. We did a sport for each season. The same little boy in the village, uh, Rock, as a kid. We did a baseball story, a boxing story, a basketball. So, so we actually have worked together, but not in film. But they just brought the book back for a 30-year anniversary, and Rock and I did a little bit of a circuit. Uh, he's just an amazing person, and that's one of those collaborations that will last forever. It's just very special. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, having sort of, at the time, assumed that you perhaps wouldn't go back into animation, now that you have made this new film, do you feel at all sort of reinvigorated for it, or is it drawn a line under it again? Uh, it's a great question also, because as we sit here this morning, you called me, I'm sitting in my studio and I'm just thinking, what's next? Uh, you would think after like 40 years, like I, it, I would get used to this, but it's totally back to square one. The older I get, I, I'm more, I embrace sort of the uncertainty more, and it doesn't cause me the anxiety in the same way. But I'm trying to stay open. Uh, in a way, I, am, I feel the momentum of this past film and knowing how to use TV paint program and the Cintiq. So I'm rearing to go with something, but. I always kind of follow what's inside of me to connect with that. So I'm trying to, you know, without getting too new age here, but like I'm trying to sort of really see what's next. I'm, I've always been interested, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the art therapy, but in kind of inner process and inner journey and kind of personal growth type of thing. So I feel whatever I do next would be somehow connected with that, whether it's through film or writing or um, I'm not even sure what, but I love I love telling stories. It's it's just uh, I love listening to stories and sort of the, the whole aspect of the narrative. You know, that's my approach to film, and it's just something that is a passion with me. So I'm sure if a story came my way that I couldn't resist, uh, I'd probably be the first one out there trying to get it made. But but right now I'm I'm just trying to stay open. So we'll see, I guess. That was Sheldon Cohen the director of My Heart Attack, and that will be screened at the Manchester Animation Festival in our Squiggly Showcase tomorrow at 4pm, that's Tuesday 17th. Also in the second Squiggly screening, that will be on Wednesday at 3.30, we have Fulfillment by Rhiannon Evans. This is an NFTS film. 
that uh, I was really sort of glad to be able to have the opportunity to screen at MAF. I think it's probably one of both of our sort of favourites of this year's NFTS crop. Yeah, it's a beautiful little film. It's about a bulb who's trying to find his, I guess, socket. It's about like ideas and where they come from. It's a nice, fairly accessible, quite well done visually little uh, parable, I suppose, about the creative process, about like idea generation, that kind of thing. There's a little bit of an underdog story component to it. I was talking with some people about it recently, who one of whom sort of compared it a bit to the kind of Luxo Junior in the sense of it's, you know, it's it's a light bulb with a, a life of its own, but it's not really a similar kind of story. I think it's more of a... I know there are so many films about creating ideas, about getting started with an idea, about procrastination, about the creative process, and it's almost a kind of, like crutch with student films so when you find one that is actually inventive it's such a relief mm. and that I certainly felt was the case with uh, with fulfillment yeah I think it's because it's very loosely about an idea it's about like having a component for an idea and finding where it goes within another idea so like you might have an idea for an, a film but you don't know in what way you want to do it and then it finding its mm. its slot and then being able to fulfill its potential I guess yeah. uh, but that's like that's us reading really quite heavily into it I think I think it's mostly about like I said like an underdog story of a light bulb trying to find its home yeah. but it's just done very very well especially against the crop from last year there was quite a few stop-motion films but for some reason this one ha I haven't seen at festivals as much and I don't really know why because personally I thought it was one that was animation wise probably one of the strongest like it's very cleanly done i guess it doesn't really have the normal struggles that most stop motion does where it doesn't because the bulb doesn't have legs or arms or anything it's just eyeballs and a bulb it's just moving around and blinking mm. but i always think that's you know it's not a case of someone being a better or worse animator it's just being a better problem solver or, or being able to think of something that's more doable but yeah no it's just it's a really well done film it just looks because it's got that kind of industrial look very good atmosphere to it. Very good atmosphere and sound and a sort of sense of slightly claustrophobic almost in a way. Mm. No, I'm very glad it's part of the R screening. Mm -hmm. Well, quite a while back, Steve got to meet Rhiannon and talk to her at the Edinburgh Festival. We'll chat to Steve just after this interview about his impressions of the film and also about some more math stuff after the interview. But this is Steve talking to Rhiannon Evans, director of the NFTS film Fulfillment. So my name is Rhiannon Evans and I directed Fulfillment. Um, it's a short stop motion about a small thought that's lost in the brain and doesn't know where to belong. Can't find its place. Uh, where, would, where was the inspiration for this film? Where did that come from? Well, I've had this for a long time. Um, about six years, actually, I think. Uh, I made a film in Newport called Heartstrings, which went out and did quite well at festivals, and I was not expecting it at all. I made that film to try and get a job as an animator. I thought I need two characters, I need them to do lots of interaction, I need a love story because a love story has lots of different emotions that I can animate and then Ardman will give me a job, that, that was my theory in, in Newport. Um, but then it got sent out to festivals and people liked it and particularly audience awards, they were, it was winning audience awards and so I sat down and thought what was it about that film that's connecting with people? And so I thought back on where that idea came from and as I was doing that I thought about it as as an idea bouncing around in my own head and it took me a couple of days and I was still thinking about it and eventually I realized that it was because it came from somewhere that wasn't where I was thinking it was what I was feeling 
So you know, it's it's it was a personal sort of a story. Um, and then I thought, wouldn't it be good if I could share this inspirational idea with people? But also, wouldn't it be great if you could have light bulbs moving around? Because then, you know, ideas are light bulbs. It seemed it seemed instantaneous for me. The idea of there's an idea and he looks like a light bulb and then I thought about how wonderful it would be to have a light bulb sort of sliding around in places um, and then so I wrote the script quite uh, quickly actually after Half Trains because there was a there was a Welsh funding thing that I wanted to apply for um, and it, you know it got through but it didn't get the funding and there was another one and another one um, but this idea never really went away and the film never really went away and I really wanted to make it um, and so the way that I thought I could make it was to go to film school because all of the great films were coming out there. Um, and so, what, what interestingly, what you have to do when at the film school before you're going into grad film is come up with three ideas. So you need three films that you're going to develop. Um, and so I had, I, I always knew it was going to be the light bulb one. I knew it. I couldn't shake it. But I went through the process of, okay, what if the light bulb one isn't very good? What if it needs to be something else? So I wrote two other films, but they were never going to make it. Never. My heart just wasn't in those, but it was in fulfillment. Nice. Yeah. Um, rather interestingly, uh, for a film set inside the head, yeah. it's very industrial. Uh, tell it us is. a little bit about the look, perhaps. The look is, is part, part choice, part necessity. Um, I really, really wanted to have a found object world. I wanted us to go skip diving, I wanted to buy loads of junk off the internet, I just wanted to create it out of real things and have a real bulb sliding around. Um, but apparently that costs a lot of money um, and we didn't have it. The cheaper way of doing it was to construct it, to create it. Uh, and I was a production designer on the, on the project, you get given a production designer as part of your team. Um, and this is sort of the thing that she came up with that we could do within budget that would still have the same feeling to it. Um, the idea of it being industrial in general was because I wanted it to feel like a factory, like it was something that was constantly producing ideas. I mean, originally I wanted all of these light bulbs. It was full of light bulbs. It was full of activity and budget constraints and time means you can't have that stuff and it all gets stripped out, but the design still stayed. Um, but I also, one of the briefs that I gave the uh, production designer was I, I don't want it to feel like inside the body because she was thinking about squelchy things and soft things and I thought, but that's not what a light bulb is. The light bulb is a hard thing. It's glass and metal and you need to feel like this light bulb lives in this world. So the, the thing that I said to her was imagine the human body but you've stripped all of the flesh and the bone and everything and the blood out of it and all you've got left is the network of electricity and, and you know the solid sections um, and then that fitted for me then that fitted with the idea of a light bulb living in a brain. Um, the film never explicitly there's not a word of dialogue well it's a few words of dialogue mm -hmm. the film never explicitly um, leaves the brain or, or leaves the, the or leaves the body or anything like that um, were you ever encouraged or were you ever sort of uh, tempted to tell the story differently or was you adamant about keeping certain things in the film? Um, well this actually one of the most difficult things about this film and making it at the school as well because you are, like I said earlier, encouraged a lot to think about your audience and, and when that happens people start to worry about the audience so they, they, they know they understand it but they worry about the audience understanding it even though the audience is them see what I mean they, they worry about other people um, and so there was always this thing where yes but if you just explained where you were if you just showed where you were 
people would like it more. And I, I wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted to assume the audience was cleverer than that, because I know that they are. Um, and I wanted to challenge them, and I wanted to make them think. However, when I first started doing it, and in the animatic stages, there was always a cross-section through the body. Um, so you would see just a silhouette of a head and uh, shoulders, so that you would establish that he was in the head, he was in the brain early, so that when you see the end, which I'm not going to talk about, um, it feels, you feel it more. That was the idea for it. And, and it was necessary in the animatic because there was no dialogue. It, my drawings aren't great, they're quite sketchy and blah, blah. So the animatic was quite hard to read. So having that cross-section was a good thing. But myself and the editor, Samantha, and Alex, the producer, and Joe was my co-writer, we all kind of felt like it was there for the wrong reasons. But we kept it. But it was scheduled as the last thing to ever be built or shot because we just felt like it was the wrong thing. Um, and even towards the very end of production, we were assembling as we went along. I still wasn't sure. I didn't know if it was necessary or not. And in the end, I just sort of took the leap of faith that the audience will get it. If I have, especially if I have a good tagline to it, which, you know, if you didn't get it watching it, if you go back and you read, be like, okay, I understand exactly what was going on. I'm going to watch it again. That's kind of what I was hoping for. Um, the the idea of, of light bulbs, yeah. very limited. There's no arms, there's no legs, there's mm. no... Um, it's a very limited character to use. Yeah. Um, tell us how you injected so much personality into those particular shapes and colours. Well, I'm glad you think I did. <laughs> because when I first started talking about I'm going to have a light bulb and he's going to slide around, um, people didn't think that I could make that emote anything. They didn't think an audience would care about it. But I wholeheartedly believed that you would. Um, just because I think if you give something eyes, you instantly connect to it. it. It can just be sitting there doing nothing. If it looks like it's got some eyes, you see it as a character. Um, and so I believed that it would be fine. It took some convincing for people, but I believed that it would be fine. And also having no arms and legs and, you know, we had a version of the script one time which was really funny, and they, but they wore clothes. Um, they had little hard hats and little, but you know, it was a lovely idea. It was a feature film idea, but it was a lovely idea. Um, but I just felt like, mm, I want to strip that stuff away and just have someone connect with something that looks a bit like a real object, you know? Um, and actually he did have legs for a while. Because uh, I started to believe people telling me that they won't understand, they won't like, you won't think of him as a character. So he did have legs for a while, um, but eventually, actually Nina was the one who convinced me that it just wasn't necessary. She, she just looked at me and went, "Why do you give him legs?" And I was like, "Why do I give him legs?" Um, and I think with with giving him personality, blinks can do a lot. That's that's my go-to thing. Adam Elliott said it the other day. It made me really happy. His go-to thing is blinking because if something's blinking in the right way, you kind of feel for it instantly. Um, so I think a lot of it was down to that. And also, what I was trying to do with this film, I didn't quite get as far along as I wanted, was have a 2D sort of squash and stretch effect with it um, for a long time. Like even the glass that I had, because the glass was all blown by glass blower, surreal glass, um, and it was happened early in the process. So I have all of the glass heads they are able to do a squash and stretch um, thing with them. But when it came to actually shooting, I didn't have the time to animate that. Um, so I managed to just use the heads that I had and give it a little bit of wobble and a little bit of up and down. And um, Yeah, I got out of him what I could, I think. I'm not sure I could have got much more out of him. He could have, he could have moved more um, cartoony, I think, in general. 
but then that's just my skills as an animator. I'm not that amazing. <laughs> and I, I, I would, I wouldn't put yourself down too much, but because you didn't use squash and stretch, mm. when he make, takes his leap of faith at the end, mm. because he's quite a rigid character throughout. Yeah. I believe he's going to smash. Good. If I saw him, if I saw him squash and stretch, I'd think. You just bounce. It's fine, it bounce back up. Well, that's good. I actually hadn't thought about that. Sorry. So, no, that's great. I'm going to use that from now on. Oh, right, okay. That's why I did it. Yeah. No, it's, I, yeah. There, there is this moment where I do want people to think he's going to smash, and you're absolutely right. If, you, if you've if you seen him land somewhere before and he's bounced, you're not, you're not going to feel as much for him. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I should have told you that before. <laughs> I would have sounded really clever. Well, they, they edit my bits out, so... Oh. <laughs> Yeah, oh, cool. Okay, great. Um, what's next? Fulfillment and what's next for yourself? Well, fulfillment is still going off doing things. Um, the, it's got its international premiere uh, in August, I think, at the Rhode Island uh, Film Festival. Um, but that's as far as I know, that's all we've had so far. Um, so there's still a few premieres up for grabs, and there's still loads of festivals to enter. So that's that's going to keep me busy for a while. Um, in terms of what I'm doing. I, I'm not sure what to do because it's after you know the end of film school. There's so many paths to take, and there's a lot of opportunities, and I'm not sure which one to go for. Um, I really would like to make another film, um, but I just don't have that idea yet. You know that idea that just sort of won't let you go. I have a lot of ideas, but I don't have that one that's going to make me passionate enough about it that I'll make it even if I've only got 200 quid. You know what I mean? So I need that idea first, I think. Um, I'd also like to work in kids' TV. I really like, um, I'd like to develop some sort of kids' TV series. Um, I've just seen Hey Dougie by uh, Studio AK, and I'm just like, oh, I wish I'd made that, because it's so lovely. Uh, and my nephew loves it as well, so it's clearly doing, you know, it's doing the right thing. Um, I like writing as well, um, so I wouldn't mind doing some writing. And I've got an idea for a feature, but it's based on a book and the book is uh, already owned by another company. So. I might develop it anyway, because it might make a good script and the rights might go away, so I might be able to get it done. But there's so many opportunities, I don't know what's next. There's all the paths in front of you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for chatting to us. That was Steve Henderson. Now joining me on the podcast, he was speaking with Fulfillment director Rhiannon Evans. So yeah, more animation goodness then from uh, the NFTS, one of my favourites from this year's uh, Edinburgh uh, International Film Festival, where I saw it for the first time. I think her work really does showcase the sort of potential stop motion has to inject personality and performance and emotion. It's the kind of thing that goes all the way back to uh, Luxo and, well, way before that, actually. Uh, the, uh, the stuff that Jean Svackmeyer would do, and uh, Norman McLaren, and, you know, I could probably keep going back into the past, but... Uh, go back to the first animation, matches and appeal. You could say, you know, making, giving something, you know, life, obviously the illusion of life, all that kind of stuff. What she's done is, in her film fulfillment, she's created... The idea is an idea. It takes place inside the mind, and it takes and it's the idea of this light bulb, trying to find a place within this complex very steampunky kind of environment, trying to find a place to fit in, you know. This is an unfamiliar yet familiar environment, a little bit like um, Ident. Yes, yes, that's a very good example. Do you ever feel like you're a light bulb that doesn't quite fit, Stephen? All the time. Yeah. Basically, yeah, I actually look like a light bulb when I shave my head. That is unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so Fulfillment will be playing at this week's squiggly screening at MAF on the Wednesday, 18th at 3.30pm. At home in Manchester, other upcoming screenings include the Foil Film Festival in Ireland and the Underwire Festival in London. Uh, for more info, you can find the film on facebook.com slash fulfillmentfilm. And so, Steve, any other final math updates to let our podcast audience know about before things kick off tomorrow? Very final math updates. If it sounds a little bit echoey in the background, it's because I'm actually at the offices now. I'm actually at home, frantically working away on this thing. Uh-huh. With their shiny, shiny floors. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so we've got a few, we've got a few other bits and, and bobs coming up. Uh, quite literally bobs. We've got uh, Bob Godfrey's great... Uh, it's 40 years since it won the Academy Award, and it was the first British-made animated short film to win the Academy Award. So we figured, you know, why not put on a, an event to celebrate that fact? So we'll be talking about the film, about its legacy, and we'll be screening it in glorious 35mm. Um, so that'd be nice to see for those who like uh, like their film a little bit vintage. Uh, and it's a cracking film as well. It, it's, it's, it's quite rare. Have you seen it, Ben? I, uh, I'm, uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, I will have the chance, I imagine. See, it's for people like me. It is. It's just Benefit. for you, Ben. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's the film that uh, Bob Godfrey made as a loving tribute to Isambard Kingdom Brunel, um, who, uh, well, where you're, where you're from, Ben, uh, in Bristol. He did the suspension bridge there, and um, Bob Godfrey made this wonderful musical extravaganza. Uh, and uh, it's half an hour's worth of just a riot, a riot of colour and collage and fun, and that's that. Really looking forward to seeing that on the big screen. Just announced, or oh, we've just put tickets on sale rather for uh, an event called From Paper to Puppet Stop Motion Animation Armature Making, uh, where um, well, friend of Squiggly uh, Weswood and uh, Dan from Animation Toolkits will be showing people how to put together armatures and uh, puppets and they'll be showing every part of the production process Uh, and Dan has set himself the challenge or rather Wes has set down the challenge to create a stop motion armature in just two hours. Another event that we're pleased to announce is that Blue Zoo uh, who are celebrating 15 years as a studio this year they're uh, heading up to the festival with their presentation uh, called uh, Keeping an Animation Studio Animated. Now, Blue Zoo are one of these uh, wonderful, innovative studios who set a kind of short film program amongst their animators. So when they're not working on TV series, they're all pitching against one another to make uh, these little short films. So you may have seen the first murder, the uh, the one that was voiced by uh, Adam Buxton uh, a few months ago. And they occasionally release these on uh, on their Vimeo channel. And, it, and it's a, a nice opportunity to see these uh, these artists sort of create stuff. Uh, outside of the, you know, Trifu, Tom, and uh, the ostrich, and everything else that they do, and they're also bringing up, I believe, a Oculus Rift because their next film, Hoodoo, which they'll be giving a uh, sneak preview of, is uh, created in virtual reality. Mm. So you have to wear one of those silly uh, helmets to uh, fully appreciate the film. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of a play on a, on a Rift and a Click the other week, and that's it's interesting. I'd not done it before. It's not quite what I expected, but I definitely saw a good potential for a new kind of um, branch of filmmaking. I could see why it would hold some appeal. I think Blue Zoo would, would definitely be very capable hands to have a mm. project like that in. 
So, yes, intriguing. It's great, isn't it? Because we think about how long we've been doing this podcast now, Ben, about three years, and we wasn't we weren't really talking. We started this podcast, and animation was on a bit of a slump, really. There was no... And then we came along, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sprinkled indeed. our podcast fairy dust. And... That's it, and it's just it's just skyrocketed since then. Everyone, <laughs> you know, and what do we get for it? Nothing. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, we, you know, the tax breaks had just come into effect, and, and, and you know, we could see a kind of a, a rise now and a, a, a kind of evolving over the last three years and it's great to see so much innovation we've also been putting on a full screening of the bfg uh the the, the classic cosgrove hall uh feature uh which we'll be sticking on on the thursday at uh, 5 40 in the afternoon so those who got a who will get a taste for it at the brian cosgrove event on tuesday which is going to be huge they'll be able to see the whole thing on the Thursday, up on the big screen. This is, is this a restored print, or uh... yeah, it's been restored. It's been stuck on Blu-ray, and uh, it's going to be stuck on our screen. Fantastic! And obviously, Ben, obviously, looking forward to the uh, squiggly screenings and uh, the squiggly quiz, which we've got an absolute bumper crop of prizes for the quiz. Uh, we've been getting, we got signed uh, Cosgrove Hall DVDs signed by Brian Cosgrove. We've got. Uh, Signed books and uh, other Blu-rays, DVDs. We've got more prizes probably than we've got contestants. So it's going to be an absolutely wonderful bit of fun. And obviously the screenings are there and they're for free, uh, as is the quiz. So hopefully we'll see some of the Manchester community down there. Well, hopefully we'll see people from uh, from all over the nation. Mm. It'd be fools not to make the trek. It sounds uh, it sounds like an absolutely blistering lineup. It, it's 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 been great to put on um, uh, working with. Uh, Deb Singleton and, and, and Bill Lawrence, and uh, not to mention Jen Hall, who has really turned this thing from what would have been a few screenings to what you've just said, you know, a, a, a viable... I don't know what you've just said, Ben. I can't remember. It was something brilliant, I'm of sure. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, very much looking forward to it. And uh, I like I like any animation event, so um, I, if there are some squiggly people there, I'm looking forward to meeting them. Yes, yes. Come one, come all. We'd love to... Say hello, put some faces to Twitter handles. So thank you, Steve. Thank you also to Laura Beth Cowley and to our guest Sheldon Cohen, as well as screening tomorrow at MAF Sheldon's film My Heart Attack. We'll be screening at Les Sommets du Cinéma d'Animation in Montreal. It's a really, really great festival. I was there a couple years ago. Uh, you can find out more at cinematech.qc.ca. Also, in the near future, Sheldon will be planning on taking the film on tour with accompanying talks about the making of the film, you can find out more about upcoming appearances at bysheldoncohen.com. Thanks also to our other guest, Rhiannon Evans, director of Fulfillment. You can see more of her work at rhiannonevans.co.uk, and you can follow Rhiannon on Twitter at re underscore anon. You can also follow myself on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Steve underscore S underscore Henderson, and Laura Beth is at LB Cowley. Of course, Squiggly is at squiggly the website is squiggly.com and of course facebook.com slash squiggly magazine feel free to subscribe like follow spread the word so for those of you who'll be at math this week we look forward to meeting you don't be shy do say hello and to everyone else until next time take care happy animating (laughs) 